Well, hey, good morning, everybody. Good job making it out. 8, 8 a.m., it's snowing, or it snowed, and it's crazy. I'm glad you guys are here safe. Uh, but hey, my name's Austin, one of the pastors here, and uh, I love Sundays to gather with you guys, my family, to, to sing together, to clap, cheer for Jesus, to, to worship him, to study his words together, to eat donuts and drink coffee and, and just hang out as a family. And so uh, thanks for being here. I'm excited. We'll be in Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, you can grab your Bibles and open up there if you like. Um, but as we're getting there, hey, have you, have you ever had a time where you had the wrong person try to do the job? Can you think of an instance like you had the wrong person try to do the job? Well, my wife and I have this kind of hilarious thing where uh, if one of us tries something and we can't do it, the other person tries, and if they get it, you get the bragging rights to say, hey, don't send a man to do a woman's job. Like, so it rarely ever works in my favor. Like, I never get to say, don't send a woman to do a man's job, because my wife is just so much better than me in so many instances. And so anyways, um, we, our house was built in the 60s, and I think it has the original garage door. And so especially when it's cold out, that thing goes down loud and slow, okay? And what happens, if you, like, and some of y'all know what I mean, but it goes down, it's like five inches from the bottom, you're like, please, God, please. And it stops. And you're like, no. And it goes back up, you know? And so I, my classic is just like, keep pushing it, you know, until it like malfunction just goes down. Or I just like hold it. And so sometimes it works. But the other day, I am uh, already late for work. And so I'm trying to get it to go. And it does the whole five inches from the top or bottom thing and goes back up. And so I give it the old three-time attempt. It doesn't work. And so I just leave, right? Because I'm already going to be late. And so it like the garage door's up and I leave and I call Kristen. Hey, sweetheart, uh, man, the, I think the garage door is finally done. Like, it's just not going to close for us. And so if you just want to call someone, either get it fixed or we, let's just get a new one, you know, it's old. And, uh, and she texts me 15 minutes later, don't send a man to do a woman's job. And it's down, you know. I'm like, dang it, you know. And so uh, she totally earned it. I'm like, gosh. And so, um, so yeah, my 25-week pregnant wife fixed the garage and I couldn't, okay? So uh, there, there it is. And it's funny because now it's kind of reversed on her. And so I'm just like, like, sweetheart, I just can't do things as good as you, so I'm just not even going to try. And she's like, no, 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 that doesn't work that way. Like sometimes the average mediocre one does it, okay? I'm okay with that kind of job. And so anyways, it's hilarious. But here's the point. You need the right person to do the job, right? You need the right person to do the job. And our verses this morning are going to show us that... Um, that the blood of, uh, of goats and bulls couldn't get the job of our salvation done, right? The job of our salvation could not be accomplished through the blood of goats and bulls, right? Don't send an animal's blood to do what only Jesus' blood can, right? And so we're going to see that. Or if you're a little bit like, I don't know about blood, like I'm a little like queasy with that, uh, our passage says blood 11 times. Like, that's crazy, right? So if you're like, I don't like blood, like, you're going to like it, okay, by the end of this, all right? Uh, uh, or be so done with blood that you don't want to think about it. But anyways, uh, our verses are going to show us that Jesus' blood alone purifies our conscience, has paid for our sin without compromise, and has purchased our eternal security completely, right? So that's what we're going to see, those three things that Jesus' blood alone accomplished. And so we'll start, let's jump in. We'll just read verse 14, and we'll jump into our first uh, thing that our verse shows us. So verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And so the first thing I want us to see in our verses is that Jesus' blood purifies our conscience. Purifies our conscience. So 
The first 10 verses of chapter 9 that we looked at last week uh, um, explain the, the tents, right? The old tents. So there's a lampstand and there's, there, there's bread and there's a table. And then past that, past this curtain, is the most holy place, okay? And the high priest was the only person that could go in there and he could only go in once a year, right? And so after sacrificing for his own sins, he would go into this place and make a sacrifice for the unintentional sins of the people. This is a huge deal. But then verses 9 and 10, just to get some context, to explain its limits, right? So it was huge, but look at verses 9 and 10 uh, real quick, and this is just its limits. It says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifice are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, right? So there's the limits. It was good, but it had limits to what it could do. It can't perfect the conscience. It can only deal with the external, right? It can't transform the inside it can only kind of clean up the outside, right? And then verse 11 comes in and gives us the good news right after that to start our passage. It says, but, referring back to that, when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, uh, not made with hands that is not of the creation, right? So he's saying Jesus went into this better tent, right? This more eternal tent. Now, the old high priest entered into that most holy place every year, right, to sacrifice for the sins of the people, but it couldn't cleanse them completely, right? There was a limit to what it could do, and verse 11 says that Jesus came as our better high priest, and he didn't enter the old tent that was made with hands. He entered the better, perfect, greater tent, and this tent wasn't made with human hands. It was an eternal tent, right? Now, I know that sounds theological and stuff like that, but here, here, here's kind of just like practical. Imagine how crazy that would sound to the people, like, hey, he's telling them, hey, the mo-, like, and they're thinking the most holy place is the most holy place, like, hence the name, right? And he's saying, hey, there's actually a more holy place. Like, there's actually something better than that place that you could only go, the high priest could only go once a year. There's somewhere better. And when Kristen and I lived in uh, South Africa, um, the kids that we were with dreamed of America. Like you would ask them, hey, if you could travel anywhere or live anywhere, where would it be? And they're like, America. And we're like, you need to dream bigger, right? But anyways, they just, they thought so highly of America. They thought we were celebrities just because we were from there, which I kind of appreciated, you know? And then they also were like, do you know, like, do you know Kanye West? And we're like, no, we, we don't know Kanye. And they're like, well, you live in America? I'm like, yeah, it's bigger than that. Like I, and so anyway, it's so funny. They literally thought we knew celebrities or we were celebrities. And, uh, and so anyways, to them, there was nothing better. Like, like there's nowhere else on the planet that can give you what America could give you. And this was obviously a great segue to tell them about heaven and tell them about Jesus, right? Hey, however great you think Beyonce is and Target and Hollywood and the American Dream and Taylor Swift and the Statue of Liberty and Snow and 725 minimum wage and the Grand Canyon is, there is something so much better, right? There is something so much better. I'll never forget. Uh, <laughs> Katie, remember this. Uh, I think I like found a dime in my pocket. I was like, oh, and little boy, I was like, do you want this? And he's like, I'm rich, you know, and he just like ran away. He's the most popular kid for a couple weeks. And so uh, he had this dime and he thought he was just like a legend. And he was. But, um, but anyways, man, as much as we would try to convince them, as much as we try to convince them, it felt unimaginable to them that somewhere else could give them what America couldn't give them right? Like that, like they, it was so hard. Like another place could do what America couldn't. And this is what the author is drawing out for us with the better tent and the old tent, right? That with the most holy place and really the more holy place, this is the off factor of what he's saying. There is a more holy place than the most holy place, 
right? And if you think about it, man, if, if, if the most holy place could, could do something for us, imagine what even greater could do. Imagine what even a better place could do. And guess what? Jesus went there on your behalf. Jesus went there for you. And if the old tent built with human hands could atone for sins, imagine what the eternal tent could do for you with Jesus working for you, right? And verse, verse 12 explains what this tent could do, what Jesus in this tent could do. Verse 12, it says, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, so not only did Jesus enter into a better place for you, but he also sacrificed a better blood for you, right? He went to a better place, but he also sacrificed a better blood. And so uh, we'll look at verse 13 and 14 to kind of see what, what this means. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? This is the same argument, right? When the old priest would go into the old tent, he would sacrifice the blood of goats and bulls. And verse 12 says, actually, it sanctified the purification of the flesh. But if it did that, and that was awesome, and that was great, and they love that, how much better, how much more would Jesus' own blood do for us, right? If that did something, imagine how much more. And, and like, what's more important, the blood of Jesus or goats? Like, y'all don't need to go to seminary to understand that. Like, what's more valuable, the Son of God or some random goats and bulls? The Son of God. And so, not only did Jesus enter into a better place, but he also sacrificed better blood, And we see that because of this sacrifice in the better place, with the better blood, Jesus accomplished two things for us within this uh, small section. Verse 12 says he secured an eternal redemption for us. And verse 14 says he purifies our conscience. Okay, There's two things from the better place with the better blood. And so these previous sacrifices, they pointed to eternal redemption. And they pointed to the purification of our conscience, but they couldn't get the job done, right? They weren't the right person to get the job done. And so here's the question. What does it mean for Jesus to purify our conscience, right? Like that's huge. Like this is a big part. And remember, verse 9 in the passage before, that was the key thing that it said the old covenant couldn't do. The old blood couldn't do. The old tent couldn't do. And so this is huge for us to understand. And so what's different between Jesus's blood and the blood of goats and calves, right? Well, on the Day of Atonement, right, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place to sacrifice um, for people's sin. And the problem was they kept sinning, right? So they kept having to go every single year back again and wait for the atonement of their sin. And these efforts are the dead works talked about in verse 14. They're dead works because they don't amount to anything, right? They're just futile. They just come back to it over and over and over and over again every year, atoning for the same sins of the same people that are just going to do the same thing the next year, right? And these dead works for us are the futile efforts that we have to try and earn God's love. By verse 14, the futile efforts that God is cleansing us of, our conscience of, are the dead efforts that we have to try and earn God's love. So here's what happens. We start to think that God is like Santa Claus, right? And so we live our lives trying to do our best to maybe just maybe make the nice list, right? And so we do good and we work hard to maybe think that God might be proud of us. 
And so we work tirelessly to try and tilt the moral scale in our favor. We, we think that maybe uh, our good efforts might just outweigh our bad efforts. And so we do all of these things frantically hoping that God may just be proud of us. And so we go to church, not to learn about God's love, but to try to earn God's love, right? We read our Bibles, not to spend time with God, but to punch our religious time clock. We give financially to the church, not to uh, respond to what God's given us, but to try and twist his arm into giving us even more. Like, this is what we do. And here's the problem. We're not loving God, and we're not loving people. We're loving ourselves and trying to get ourselves into heaven, right? Like, that's really what you're doing in the midst of all of that. And and so, um, and we will do whatever it takes to make uh, it look like we love God to avoid hell, right? We'll do whatever it takes, but God doesn't just see the outward appearance. He doesn't just see what you do. He sees the heart. He knows your motive, and God isn't just concerned with what you do. He's also concerned with why you do it, right? And so we will tirelessly work towards that. And listen, this is sobering, but to assume that you can earn God's love is to spit on Jesus' cross. Like every effort we make to try to pay for our own sin or earn God's love is to look at Jesus on the cross and say, I don't need that, right? Every moral thing we do, attempting to persuade God into accepting us, is proclaiming that the cross of Jesus either wasn't needed or it wasn't enough. And both are treacherous sins, right? We cannot do that. Listen, you can't make God love you. You can't. You can't earn his love or win his love. Even your brightest moments, proudest achievements, and most heroic efforts apart from God are drenched in sin. It doesn't matter how amazing your resume looks, it is drenched in sin apart from Jesus. And verse 12 says that Jesus' blood secures your eternal redemption, not your blood, sweat, and tears for God. Jesus' blood, not your blood, sweat, and tears for God. And so here's how Jesus purifies our conscience from dead works, right? He, when we place our faith in him, he removes our guilt and our shame, right? By faith alone in Jesus, you stand righteous before God. You are clean, you are adopted, you are loved, you are infinitely valuable to God because of your faith in his son. There's nothing more that you can do to add to his love or take away from his love. It is finished. It's unconditional, unwavering, and inexhaustible, right? That's his love for you. And there's a woman in our church that uh, considers herself a recovering legalist, right? A recovering legalist. And what she means by that is she once believed and operated as if her good works and her efforts could make God proud of her. But by God's grace, he's actually purified her conscience and convinced her that she is a beloved daughter of the king because of grace and grace alone, right? He's convinced her that her best days and her worst days, she's infinitely loved by the king. He's convinced her of that. And I'm willing to bet there are a lot of recovering legalists in the room. A lot of us have neglected to accept the scandal of Jesus's grace and what he's done on the cross. And we thought, man, I don't need that. I mean, or, or at least it's 80 and then me 20, or I'm going to do a little bit of the work. I at least have to have some skin in the game in this relationship. I can't just take 100%. I need to give something. I'm willing to bet there are a lot of recovering legalists in the room. And so here's the question. Does that mean that we just go, well, I mean, if those good efforts were actually sin because I was trying to earn God's love, then do I just kind of throw my hands up and not do anything good for God anymore because I'm afraid I might start to identify with that? Absolutely not. Verse 14 ends. It says, purify our conscience from dead works to what? 
to serve the living God. And so check this out. This is the beautiful kind of paradox of it all. Redeemed people, saved people, joyfully serve God in doing the very things we once did out of obligation to try to justify ourselves. And now we do them joyfully to the king. We do them joyfully to God and say, no, this isn't to earn your love, but to respond to you earning, or earning your love for me, right? This is to respond to God's earning for us, not to try and earn for ourselves, right? It's beautiful. So this is what happens. Our church attendance, our, our, our purity, our, our Bible reading, our efforts, our uh, giving to the church are no longer a facade to win over God, but an exuberant response to what he's already done for us, right? This is what it is. And so check this out. This frees us up with purified consciences to know that we are infinitely loved because of what Jesus has done, not by what we do. It frees us up to actually serve God uh, because we love him right? Because we just love them, and it frees us up to look at people, not as pawns and checklists and projects, but as real people that Jesus died for and Jesus loves. It frees us up to actually care and actually love and stop thinking about ourselves. That's what a purified conscience does, and only Jesus' blood can do that for us, right? And I want to just be clear, grace does not produce lazy Christians. It produces loving children that want to joyfully join our Father in his efforts and in his mission. Amen? This is what grace does, and Jesus' blood alone can purify our conscience. And Jesus' blood also pays for our sin without compromise, right? This is another beautiful thing that it, uh, his blood does. And so look at verses 15 and 16. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Okay, so the second thing our verses show us that Jesus' blood did is that he paid for our sin without compromise. Um, now, verse 15 says that Jesus is our mediator, right? Um, and when I think of mediation, maybe when you do too, we got a couple like lawyers, law students in here. One of the connotated words that I think of is compromise, right? Like the role of a mediator is usually to compromise and get both parties to do that. And so as a dad, I've actually become a professional mediator. I'm really good at it. And so uh, we're best friends with two other couples, the Oltmans and the Morgans. And we all kind of had our first child at the same time. We're having our second one at the same time. It's kind of crazy, but it's super fun to do life together. And when little Addie and little Roman come over to play with Gracie, uh, it thinks it a little crazy sometimes, okay? And, uh, <laughs> and so Roman finds this toy, and it now becomes the most valuable toy in the world to Gracie and Addie, you know? And so Addie's grabbing at it, screaming. Gracie's yelling some gibberish. I mean, she is mad because it's technically her toy, but she hasn't paid attention to it in four months. It's like, now it's important to you, but it just sat in the bin for like four months, you know? Parents, you know what I mean? And so, so anyways... So I, sit, I put my mediator hat on, and I bravely enter the situation. It gets messy sometimes, right, folks? And so anyways, I'm in there, and I'm saying, hey, hey, and I look at him, and you know, they're, they're mad, you know? And, uh, and Roman's just so happy because he's got it, you know? And so anyways, I said, hey, guys, man, he, here's the deal, here's the deal. Roman, you can't have it forever. I think I, after you play with it just for a little bit, give it to Addie, and then Addie, when you're done, give it to Gracie. Here's the problem. When Gracie gets it, Roman's got another one, and it starts over again. And you're like... Oh my gosh, you know, like, uh, you know, again, do I just go to the store and buy the same toy twice, you know, so they all have three, and anyways, um, uh, right, the role of a mediator normally in our context is to get the other parties to compromise, 
right? Usually in almost all mediation scenarios, people leave disappointed, right? With some sense of compromise. And so Addie and Gracie wanted the toy immediately and they had to wait. Roman wanted to hold on to it forever and get the attention of the girls, but he had to give it up and he had to share it, right? Like that's just what happened. And so here's the question. Here's the whole point I'm trying to make. Is this how Jesus mediated for us? Is this how Jesus mediated for us? Did he, you know, I mean, God requires perfection from all of us. And did Jesus say, hey, God, man, would you mind? I know, I know perfect's kind of say, would you mind if you go easy on him and just kind of do like pretty good? Because I can get a lot of people in for pretty good, right? Is that how Jesus mediated? Not at all. Absolutely not, right? Our verses are clear that Jesus paid for your sin without compromise. As our perfect mediator, there was no compromising effect in what Jesus has done for us. And our verses show us how. In verses 15 through 17, the author says, hey, for a will to come into effect, the creator of the will has to die, right? You don't receive your, gran- your inheritance from your grandparents until they pass away, right? And then verse 15 says that, hey, this is good news. You actually have an eternal inheritance because of Jesus, and someone needed to die for it, right? And will, that word, and covenant are actually the same word in Greek, right? So those are interchangeable. We've been talking about covenant, but then he switches it to say will, And the old covenant was limited. The old will was limited, and we needed a better one. And so he's saying that for the new covenant to take place, someone needed to die. Someone needed to die. And the author explains this has always been the way it works. In Exodus 24, God has a a covenant made with Moses, and the first thing they do is they sacrifice uh, goats and calves, right, uh, and sprinkle the blood to inaugurate the, the covenant. So death had to be experienced for the inauguration of a new covenant or a new will, right? That's normal for us. And so the question is, why all this talk about blood, right? Blood seems to be a key theme. Why? Well, Leviticus 17.11, God says, the life is in the blood, right? The life is in the blood. And so uh, without blood, you don't have life, right? Every time the Israelites would sacrifice a a goat and cut its throat open, um, and they would watch its blood drain out, they would also watch its life drain out, right? You could tangibly see that. So bloodshed is death experienced. And verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, right? If there isn't bloodshed, there is no forgiveness. And so this is key, friends, to Jesus paying for our sin without compromise. And so check this out. Jesus agrees wholeheartedly with the Father about the wretchedness of our sin. Jesus agrees wholeheartedly with the Father that wrath needs to be poured out on sin. Jesus agrees wholeheartedly with the Father that there needs to be a sacrifice and a death and blood shed for that sin. And as our perfect mediator, Jesus also agrees to be that substitute, to be that sacrifice for us without compromise making Jesus both the just and the justifier. Without compromise, Jesus paid every last drop of your sin. And so for those who are called, Jesus paid for your sin with his blood and died the death that you deserve, right? This is the glory of the gospel, so that we might receive an eternal inheritance by faith alone and Jesus alone through grace alone, right? This is the promise. And so the new covenant has dawned on us because Jesus died for us. The new will has come into effect because Jesus gave his life for us. There was no other way. It wouldn't have been just for God to say, hey, you know what? We'll just say, wave his divine hand over us and say forgiven. No, that couldn't have happened. There would have been compromise there. Jesus had to die. His blood had to be shed, and he joyfully did it. 
And so for the forgiveness of sins and the inauguration of the new covenant, the new will, blood had to be shed, and Jesus joyfully did it. And then verses 23 and 24 remind us that the better blood was spilt without compromise in the better place, not in the handmade tent, but in the eternal tent. Jesus went into the presence of God as our better high priest. His blood was a better sacrifice that truly purified us and saved us from our sin without compromise. And then in verses 25 and 28, as the passage finishes, we see that Jesus' blood also purchased our eternal security completely, right? So let's read verses 25 and 26. Uh, nor, was it offered, uh, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with the blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of ages, this is key, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, right? Jesus' blood purchased our eternal security completely. Now, security can feel fleeting to us, right? Uh, We all kind of strive for financial security. It's a good thing to have your finances in order, but the stock markets can crash in a day, right? Your house can burn tomorrow. Like any of that can happen, right? We, uh, We think, man, even the most secure buildings in the world get broken into. It's almost impossible to secure your identity in 2019, like Facebook's getting hacked and website or and, and, and emails and bank accounts. Like it's wild, right? Um, we all long for security, but we ultimately can't find it here. The insurance industry, check this out, is worth 1.7 with a T trillion dollars, okay? The insurance industry is worth that much money. So any of y'all want to go insurance, hey, I'm happy because y'all can tithe and get, you know, hey, help us out. Uh, I'm just kidding. Yeah, go into insurance. Uh, um, but, but it's crazy, right? I remember watching this movie called 2012, if any of you guys remember it, and uh, it was about the end of the world. And there was these people that would pay $1 billion for a spot on this thing called the Ark that was supposed to save them from disaster and the end of the world. And so they're paying, I mean, but the question is, how much would you pay to know that you're secure? How much would you pay to know you're secure or know that your family is secure? And here's the good news of the scandalous gospel. You don't have to pay for your eternal security because Jesus already did, right? That's the beauty of it. And so the end of verse 26 says that Jesus put away sin forever, right, by the sacrifice of himself. And just before that, he reminds us, hey, the priest, they, had, they couldn't put away sin forever. They had to go back year after year after year to atone for people's sins, but they could not put it away forever. That was not their job. They couldn't get that job done, right? But Jesus appeared once and put it away forever. This has been the consistent theme that we've been preaching in Hebrews. Like, you're probably sick of hearing this idea that Jesus' death was sufficient and final and complete. Like, it's like the sermon every week, you know? But that's true, and Hebrews wants to press that into us over and over and over again. 100% of the work is done. All you have to respond to it is just to believe it's true, right? So it was sufficient enough and perfect. And then verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So uh, this is sobering us to the reality that every one of us will die, and every one of us will be judged. Okay, and so the healthy, active female will have the same fate as the rebellious, uh, incarcerated person, right? Like they will have the same fate. They will all die. We will all die, and we will stand before God to give an account for our lives. We will all be judged, right? It's sobering us to that reality. It's unavoidable, right? And um, there's the kind of infamous question, right? If you were to stand before God at the end of your life after you die, and he were to ask you, hey, why should I let you into heaven 
how would you respond, right? And even think right now, I just want to pause for a second and think, how would you respond, right? Just to ask you that question. If you were to die and stand before God, and if you were just to ask you, hey, why should I let you in, what would you say? And I've asked this question so many times, and I've gotten so many different responses, and so some people respond, well, gosh, um, man, I, I mean, I know I've failed a lot, but I have tried to be a good person and to do good things. And again, I know I, know I feel, but I really have tried to be good. And God's response to that would be, not good enough. Not good enough. I've had people say, well, honestly, uh, man, I, I probably say, you know, God, I, I went to church every single Sunday uh, unless I was really sick, you know, but I made it even when I was a little bit sick. And, and I served meals to the high school ministry and I read through the Bible 27 times, actually. It was really one of my favorite things to do. And I went on mission trips to Haiti every other year, and I gave 10% to the church, and I helped people every chance I got. And God would respond to that plea and say, not good enough. Not good enough. Verse 28 gives us the proper answer to why God would ever invite sinners into relationship with him or sinners into heaven, right? Um, uh, and so look, just verse 28, just that first part, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, right? Having been offered once to bear the sins of many. Of many, and so check this out. Jesus is offered once for our sins, right? Completely, final, sufficiently, once. And so the proper response, like the, the reason you would ever be in relationship with God or be invited into heaven to spend eternity with God has nothing to do with you and everything to do with, with what Jesus has done for you, right? The reality of why God would invite you in a relationship with Him or heaven. To spend eternity with him has nothing to do with you and everything to do with what he has done for you. And so the proper response is to humbly point to Jesus and say, he did for me what I could never do for myself. That's the plea. That's our only argument. That's our only hope. Nothing but the blood, right? And so, and by the way, this isn't just like, oh, cool, I've got a theological answer. Like, this is what I'll say to God. No, this is the, it's not just the right answer. It's the real affection of your heart. Like, do you really value Jesus? Do you really believe at a core level that he has justified you and saved you and done everything for your salvation completely, right? Um. And God's response to that plea, he did for me what I could never do for myself, welcome home, child. Welcome home. And so for the motivation to fight sin, I've had people good-heartedly ask me, hey, would you want to be doing that when Jesus comes back? Do you want to be doing that when he comes back? And so, you know, would you want to be in a casino when Jesus comes back? Would you want to be watching pornography when Jesus comes back? Would you want to be uh, um, uh, clearly in sin, walking in a lie? Would you want to be uh, in a bar, drunk, when Jesus comes back? Right? I mean, it's like, you, it's, would you want to be doing this when Jesus comes back? And it was a well-intended question, but what it did for me is it skewed my view of Jesus coming back. It actually took away all my joy to want Jesus to come back, right? And verse 28 says promises Jesus will come back. Like, like it says, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting. So he will appear a second time, right? And, and so he saved us from the penalty of sin in his first coming, and he'll save us from the presence of sin in his second coming, right? Be with him forevermore. Um, but it just took away all of my joy, right? To think, man, I'm not excited for Jesus to come back because I'm afraid that I'm going to be doing something that I shouldn't be doing. 
right? And I thought, gosh, man, I, I better be doing something good when he comes back or else, you know? It's kind of this fear that it was instilled in me. But verse 28 says really clearly when he comes back, he's not coming to deal with sin. He's coming to save, right? He's already dealt with sin on the cross. And so now it just, he just, he's come back to rescue us, right? To rescue you. And it's not like Jesus comes back and says, whoa, oh my gosh, I, I really honestly had no idea that Austin would sin that much. And so, you know, I didn't really cover all that 2,000 years ago, and so I'm just going to make one quick sacrifice. It'll cover it, you know, but I'm just going to make one more. No, that's heresy. To assume that Jesus didn't pay for 100% of your cross, that is, or 100% of your sin on the cross, that is heresy. Jesus paid it all, and he knew all. that The most expansive sin you've ever committed, Jesus paid for it and knew it all, right? And he gladly did it. And so check this out. Jesus' death on the cross was perfect, final, and complete. And so here's what it means. If he comes back when you're binge-watching pornography or drunk in a bar or wasting your money at a casino or yelling at your kids or clearly in a lie, if you've trusted in Jesus, there is nothing but grace for you. There is nothing but grace for you. Because Jesus paid it all. He isn't coming back to scold you. He's coming back to save you. Because he paid for it. Because it's done and it's finished. It was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. That's how final and perfect and complete his salvation is for you. Your eternity is secured completely by him. And friends, this is what actually compels us to fight sin. Paradoxically, the fact that our sin won't affect the way God sees us because he paid for it is actually the means to want to fight it and run towards Jesus and pursue holiness because that sin was nailed to the cross. And in light of that, verse 28 says, we are to eagerly await Jesus. How are we supposed to be waiting for him? We're supposed to eagerly await for him. And I think a lot of us are waiting for heaven. Like if we're just being honest, like I think a lot of us, when we think about the end of our life, we're excited for heaven, right? No pain, no death, no trauma, like no achy knees, no tragedy, no messed up politics, just, just like eternity. But, but verse, 20, verse 28 says, we're not waiting for heaven, we're waiting for Jesus. Amen? He's the one we're waiting for. He's the one we're excited for, right? And, um, and the reality that he's coming back to save us rather than scold us enables us to actually eagerly wait for him. And I remember when I was a kid and I would get in trouble, my mom would say, hey, you just wait until your dad gets home, right? And it was like, oh, gosh, like this is not going to be good. Just wait until your dad comes home, right? Some of y'all know what I mean. And, and, so, um, and so I remember waiting for my, watching the clock and waiting for my dad to come home with zero excitement because I knew that when he came home that I was going to be in trouble. I was going to have to pay for what I did earlier that day. And friends, I have to ask, are you waiting for Jesus like I waited for my dad to come home after I got in trouble, after I did something I shouldn't have? You will never eagerly await him to come in joy unless you realize that he's not coming back to scold you. He's coming back to save you. You'll never eagerly await him until you realize that. He's not coming home as an angry dad ready to punish you. He's coming back as a savior to rescue you. Man, the price for your sin is paid in full. Jesus has spilled his, he spilled his own blood to purify your conscience, 
to pay for your sin without compromise and to secure your, eternal, uh, uh, your eternity completely, right? Nothing but the blood of Jesus could do that. Amen? And this morning, we get to take communion. And could you literally think of a better passage to lead into communion, by the way? It's beautiful. And in Luke 22, Jesus explains. He's with his disciples, and he says, hey, uh, and, and, and he's got bread, and he's got wine. He says, hey, I, I, um, he specifically says, this uh, bread I give to you, he said, it's my, it's my body given for you. Like, literally, my body is a gift for you. Um, and, and Jesus did. He gave his body. He is body was actually broken for you. And so that bread represents, as you take it, that bread represents Jesus's body actually broken for you. And he says, hey, and this blood, it's, it's, it's my covenant poured out for you, right? His blood was actually shed for you, like Jesus did that. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. As you take this bread and dip it in the juice, remember that my blood was actually broken, or my blood was spilled and my body was broken for you. That's how much I love you. And so friends, this is a meal for the believer. This is, a, this is a time where the person who's trusted in Jesus gets to remember what he's done for you. It wouldn't make sense if you're a non-believer to take this because you haven't believed that he did that for you yet, right? But my plea, honestly, for the person in here that doesn't know Jesus, first off, you came on a big old passage, right? I think I got saved on like John 3, 16 or something like that. But if God compels your heart to trust in him for the first time, man, praise God and give in to that. Like if his spirit is moving in your soul to do that, would you trust in him? Would you repent from your sins, turn away and believe he fully paid for them um, completely? And if that's you, if you trust in Jesus this morning, you're, this is your family and you're welcome to take it. But uh, if you're not a believer, uh, just not invite you to stay seated and pray and think about, uh, contemplate Jesus. And, and so I'm going to pray for you guys. I love you. And uh, we'll get to celebrate communion and what Jesus did together.